Hi, my name is Lindsay Bailey, and I am the Injury Prevention Coordinator for the UNC Trauma Center in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Thank you so much for tuning in to Staying Safe While Social Distancing. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for listening today um, and tuning in to the UNC Trauma Staying Safe While Social Distancing podcast. Today, I'm going to be talking um, with a mental health professional and licensed psychologist and professor from Appalachian State University, Dr. Kurt Michael. And we're going to be talking about a very serious subject, which is suicide and suicide prevention. I'm going to let, you know, Dr. Michael do most of the talking during this interview, but I just want to preface this with the fact that right now, if you look at the news and were to Google suicide and COVID-19, although we don't have the data yet to see what these true outcomes are going to be, I think it's uh, pretty much agreed within the mental health profession that suicides are sure to climb. Um, with rising unemployment, which there is a direct link, the literature shows, between unemployment rates and suicide rates. With stress and anxiety and mental health and social isolation, we are sure to have a um, serious situation on our hands with how we're going to help and support those who are struggling mentally um, with the COVID-19 pandemic. So that's why I wanted to talk to Dr. Michael and hope that he can share some tips and prevention strategies for you or loved ones who may be struggling or suffering from suicidal thoughts. All right, so I'm very pleased that we have Kurt Michael on the phone today. He is a mental health expert and a licensed psychologist and professor of psychology at Appalachian State University. Thank you so much for being here today. Uh, Thank you for inviting me. Sure. So I wanted to speak with Kurt about specifically suicide prevention and suicide risk during this trying time with COVID-19. So to begin with, Kurt, would you go ahead and tell us a little bit about your background in mental health? Uh, Sure. So I've been on the faculty at uh, Appalachian State for uh, the past 21 years, and I would say the majority of that time, both my you know, clinical work, um, my uh, research has been uh, centered on uh, treatments for various, you know, mental health ailments, uh, depression, anxiety, substance abuse issues, and, um, and suicidality. Okay. Wonderful. Well, in your professional opinion, what are your, some of your concerns about COVID-19 in relation to mental health and suicide? And why do you think that we might expect to see an increase um, during the pandemic? Yeah, I would I would start by saying a lot of you know our insight into what to expect um, is not based on a lot of previous uh, studies, chiefly because I think where we are right now is you know, uncharted waters for the most part. But we do have some you know some basic guidance from some, some from some work that was done in the past and. To summarize some of that work, and uh, you know, for example, in the SARS uh, one epidemic that took place uh, mostly in uh, Asia, Hong Kong, those areas of the world, uh, I think the total number of infected um, individuals was around um, 8,000, 
and there were a total of 800 deaths. So just to give you a sense of the scope mm-hmm. of, of the yeah. issue now, it's quite different. But even in that uh, much smaller example of uh, the pandemic in SARS-1, we did see a spike in the aftermath of that uh, pandemic of uh, suicides, mostly in older populations in Hong Kong, that uh, that study was um, really our best evidence of potentially what to expect, uh, just from a research perspective now. And of course, we're uh, worried that uh, the spikes in suicides or even the spikes in people having suicidal thoughts or even making attempts will all be uh, up in the uh, presence of this current uh, set of circumstances. So we're, we're all kind of bracing for uh, these issues to uh, show up in uh, high numbers. Absolutely. I've seen a few news articles reporting, um, you know, they don't, like you said, there's not a lot of data yet to support this, but, you know, talking about how we're certainly going to see um, some some scary things out of this uh, pandemic. So what are some of the signs or symptoms that um, people, that people in your profession typically look for um, when someone is either suicidal or having suicidal ideations or thoughts? Right. So I thought it might be helpful for people to hear some of the key psychological symptoms that uh, we tend to evaluate uh, to determine whether someone is a higher risk for suicide, and I can summarize those for you if that would be helpful. Yes, please. That's what we we need to hear. Okay. So I guess the first thing to say before I kind of, you know, enumerate some of the particular symptoms, I want to say the first thing to watch for is a change from previous functioning. So, you know, obviously things are quite different now in terms of, you know, where people are spending most of their time in terms of their access to, uh, you know, food and, um, just having a place, uh, you know, a, a, a safe place to, to, to sleep at night. So I think all of those things have to be taken into account. And so there's going to be change in general. But I think the thing you're really watching for for individuals who may be at increased risk is a change from what uh, they previously uh, were exhibiting in terms of their complaints or their mood or their general activity level. Those are the things that you're you're just generally watching for changes, right? So Mm -hmm. specifically what we're looking for is increased evidence of what we describe to be psychological pain. Uh, That can be defined as feeling uh, hurt or a sense of uh, anguish or misery. It's not really physical pain, but I think the the, the way it's been described uh, in the literature for years has been more psychological pain, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Sure. Another thing to watch for, and this is probably a, a pretty obvious one, is uh, general stress levels. So mm-hmm. uh, not just normal everyday stress, but feeling really pressured or overwhelmed would be a uh, number two thing to really watch for. Mm-hmm. Third might be uh, somebody appearing to be agitated. Um, of The way that might be described is somebody feeling you know, a sense of urgency. Um, they they kind of feel like they're coming out of their skin a little bit. Um, that's mm-hmm. something to watch for, so agitation. Okay. Uh, a fourth might be uh, feelings of uh, hopelessness, both now and in the future. So, in other words, having uh, 
talk that's really not oriented about uh, you know down the road or in the future. It's more like uh, just being able to focus you know, in the right now and being overwhelmed by that focus on the right now or whatever the stress might currently be. So so being uh, sort of a little bit hopeless about mm-hmm. what the future might hold. Sure. So the, the last one would be sort of feelings of uh, self-hate. Uh, another way to think about that is not just like disliking just yourself, but uh, feeling um, like, you know, you might be um, not worthy or, or kind of a burden to others might be a way to think about that. So all of those things. And by the way, there, there's a systematic way to assess for this, and um, the, the, the elements I've been describing are part of a, a specific assessment uh, program mm-hmm. called um, – it's called CAMS, and that stands for Collaborative Assessment and Management of Suicidality. So that's something that we have uh, has been it's been developed for the past 30 years, and we've found that as clinicians to be uh, really helpful in doing a very particular assessment of individuals who might be at risk. Okay, great. And I will post a link to that information in the episode description too, just so people can can read up on CAMS. Um, so the question I, I thought of was, if I were to have a friend or a family member or just someone in general that I knew that had had suicidal behavior or thoughts or maybe attempts in the past, mm-hmm. what and, you know, I can't visit with them in person, what would be a, you know, good way to kind of monitor their behavior or try to maybe intervene or just check in on them? during this time when we can't, like, physically go to each other's homes and, and be like, hey, are you okay? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I guess a lot depends on, you know, are they um, alone? And if the person mm-hmm. that you're concerned about is alone, I think that would be uh, an important, uh, you know, factor to consider. And so, in other words, if, if you were to know that there was a supportive person who was, you know, close to them or, you know, mm-hmm. living in these um, shelter-in-place uh, scenarios that that would be something that maybe you want to do a check-in mm-hmm. that uh, might be private to begin with, but if you um, have concerns, if you check in with someone, you know, by phone or through, uh, you know, uh, the Internet or something like that, that you would have a, a sort of a next step, and the next step would be to seek, you know, more collateral support uh, for the person that might be living with that uh, individual that you could mm-hmm. maybe seek to make the environment uh, safer in, the, in those instances. Mm-hmm. So not just asking, I guess asking directly, and, and sometimes people are, are worried that if they ask someone how they're doing and they even ask a fairly um, direct question about whether they're having thoughts of suicide, the concern that a lot of people have is that somehow that's going to you know, kind of give that person an idea and what we've uh, known over the uh, last several years is that that's not really the typical thing that happens when you ask somebody honestly if they're having thoughts of suicide. Typically, if the answer is no, they answer no, and if the answer is yes, they'll typically um, appreciate that uh, honest question and give you typically honest answers. I mean, there are occasions where people are going to not tell you the complete truth, but it's better to ask than not ask is, is really my point. Got it. Okay. No, that that makes sense. And if somebody was, maybe if it's someone that's living in your house, maybe your teenager, maybe your spouse or um, elder elder relative that lives with you, um, I know we talked about 
um, access to lethal means when we connected mm -hmm. the other day. Would you maybe explain to us what that means and how we can limit someone's access to them? Sure. So I think the, 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 the most straightforward way to think about means safety, sometimes referred to um, you know, um, lethal means reduction or means safety, that is, you're trying to make environments uh, safer for everyone. And so that might uh, be, the, I guess the, the, the analogy would be just like when my kids who are now adults were young, we, my wife and I took the time to make uh, the house safer to mm -hmm. prevent our kids from getting into chemicals under the sink or in the bathroom right. or their medi medicine chest. And so mean safety is really nothing more complicated than that. It's basically making the environment safer. So if you know you have a, a loved one who is struggling with um, suicidal thoughts or severe depression and you want to make uh, the environment safer, you know, you you might go in the medicine chest and discard any unused or uh, uh, expired medications, painkillers, mm -hmm. and things of that nature. I think if the person is a, uh, a firearms owner, you know, you might seek to uh, secure better storage uh, either mm -hmm. in the home itself or even out of the home with a loved one who is, you know, cap capable of possessing firearms. You don't want to, you know, temporarily store them with a friend or relative who cannot legally possess them, but if in fact you do have uh, someone in your circle that um, could temporarily take possession of the firearms while that person recovers from that suicidal uh, crisis, then I think that, again, just has a better chance of preventing um, death by suicide in those, in those cases. Perfect. Yes, that makes sense. We, I talk a lot about in um, another podcast doing child, you know, child proofing around your home during the stay-at-home order. So almost, mm -hmm. almost kind of a similar thing. But yeah, getting rid of the medicine and the fire, or, you know, securing firearms is definitely really important. And even I, I will add, I um, speaking with law enforcement agencies that we partner with um, at the trauma center. I know that if you have um, firearms and you're having concerns about yourself, um, potentially hurting yourself, that you can ask law enforcement to do them for you and they will give it back to you when you are um, feeling you're ready. So that's always a resource too if you don't feel comfortable asking a family or friend. Um, right, right. Yeah. Or if I can add to that, you can also mm -hmm. even ask our local sheriff's office uh, typically gives us um, you know, uh, cable locks for to, 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 to go through the action of a firearm, so you you make it um, you know less uh, potentially dangerous to a suicidal person if you make it um, you know less uh, functional or storing the you know ammunition separately from the firearm or removing a, a, a you know the firing pin or the, the cylinder could be another simple way to create uh, time and distance uh, mm -hmm. for that person. Great. So um, just getting down to sort of my last question, is there any resources online or that people can access by phone that you would recommend um, seeking out if you're in the situation and you need more information? Um, absolutely. I, I think the, the, the historic recommendation for a 24-7 uh, suicide prevention lifeline, I'll just give that number. If, it, if it's okay, I'll just give the number. Yes, so. So it's actually 1-800-273-8255. That's the uh, Suicide Prevention Lifeline that's 24-7. Uh, 
that offers mm -hmm. confidential and uh, free support for individuals. There's also a version of that uh, lifeline that's uh, for Spanish-speaking individuals, and I can okay. give that number as well. That's yeah. uh, for the, so the Spanish one is one eight 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 six two eight nine four five four, and there's actually a chat uh, room for uh, the suicide prevention lifeline. And if you are uh, for the deaf and hard of hearing, there's actually a, a separate number for that. That's one eight hundred seven nine nine four eight eight nine. And then last, I think, and maybe for a lot of uh, young people and uh, young adults, they might prefer uh, to text uh, with someone who is trained. And so that's also free and available 24-7. So the name of the service is called Crisis Text Line. And the way you reach Crisis Text Line or a counselor would be you text uh, the uh, word HOME, H-O-M-E, to 741-741. Okay. All right. Those are, I love that there's been resources created for, you know, kind of a, a large spectrum of people with different needs. So, you know, I always go to the, the you know, just that, that first number. So I'm so appreciative that you had all those different resources for us so to meet different people's needs. Um, is there anything else you'd like to share with us or Anything that you think is important for just, you know, general public to know? Yeah, I mean, just a few things that we've, I think, learned from, from previous, uh, although much smaller examples of these kinds of infectious, uh, you know, outbreaks. I think one of the things we want to be on the lookout for is sort of the effects well after the immediate uh, crisis seems to be, um, you know, calming down a bit. So, in other words, there's going to be some economic consequences that are long range. And so I think, uh, I, I think just to caution people not to um, be, you know, let their guard down entirely because I think some of the um, rebound effects um, that happen, the reverberations that happen uh, post-pandemic need to be mm -hmm. carefully considered, especially around uh, joblessness, uh, unemployment, ongoing social isolation, that may persist past, you know, some of these stay-at-home orders. So I think, like we often train our uh, graduate students to think this way, that, you know, even though we can help someone through an acute crisis, which is important, we have to make sure to follow up with these people um, through that acute phase in the more, you know, medium to long-range uh, picture, because we sometimes forget that that's almost as important as getting these individuals through the immediate crisis period mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I think that's a really good point, that this isn't just going to kind of go away in a few short weeks. But, of course. So thank you so much for talking to me today. I really appreciate it. Um, again, I'm going to post those numbers that Kurt um, listed on the episode description so you can access them if you didn't quite hear all that or uh, didn't have a pen. So with that said, Kurt, you, thank you so much, and um, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Wow, that was some really good information and resources. Dr. Michael, thank you again so much for spending some time talking to me about this serious issue. And I hope if you're listening, you were able to get some insight and education on how you can help someone that you love if they're struggling with this scenario 
or you yourself, if you're having a hard time dealing with the pandemic and what it has done to us socially and mentally. So with that said, again, please reach out to one of those numbers that Dr. Michael provided. If you are struggling or if you know someone that is, please give this information to them. Everything will be listed in the episode description. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you later. Thanks again for listening to Staying Safe While Social Distancing. For more injury prevention tips, please visit tarheeltrauma.org. If you have any suggestions or ideas for topics that I could address in this podcast, please reach out to me at lindsay.bailey at unchealth.unc.edu.